And I have to say, like, as much as I'm a cheerleader for law firms, I really can't point to a lot of law firms that are, during this crisis, fundamentally changing their business. Um, you know, I think you've said uh, this is the kind of time where you see 10 years of change in five weeks, right? Yeah. I may have the number of weeks wrong. But in many industries, you see like this radical acceleration of the pace of change uh, as a necessity. You have to, right? But I don't see it in law firms. I don't see it at all. I'm Jack Newton, CEO and co-founder of Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal software provider. In each episode of Daily Matters, we'll explore what this new normal means for law firms, how legal professionals can find success while working remotely, and how lawyers can best serve their clients during this unprecedented situation. Today, we welcome Ed Walters as part of our Legal Tech Leaders series on Daily Matters. Ed is the CEO of Fastcase, the online legal research software company, and he is also an adjunct professor at the Georgetown University Law Center. Ed, it's so great to have you here. Great to be here, Jack. Thanks for having me. So Ed, first of all, what's on your mind most right now? There's two big things that are that are really kind of uh, front and center for me. Uh, the, the first thing I'm thinking about uh, a lot is when to go back to the office. And I think, you know, in this sense, uh, Fastcase is probably not unlike a lot of law firms in the sense that um, I don't think we quite know what the right answer is just yet. In fact, I don't even think we have the right frame yet for answering the question. So I, I read a lot about this and um, I have to say, I, I just don't really have like a, a satisfactory expert to turn to who says, here is when you know when to bring people back to the office. I keep getting these like promotional things for plastic barriers between right. uh, people who are working next to each other or the idea that we're going to stagger when the teams come in. And I just have to say, like, none of that seems very persuasive or satisfactory to me. It yeah. All seems and for, like, for you, that, that decision, does that orbit around when is it safe from a health perspective to start returning to work? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a hundred percent what it's about. So I think like the Clio team, the fast case team, has worked pretty effectively from home. For people who use Fastcase, the experience is no different whether we're in the office or out of the office. We're answering the customer service calls, the reference attorneys are all remote. And so the, you know, the, the experience for our users is roughly the same. And I think, you know, again, like I think the Fastcase team and the Clio team are very simpatico about this. If it's not interrupting the users, if the users have the same experience, we're not rushing back to the office. You know, if so, users were saying, oh, I, you know, I can't right. get the same service from Fastcase, you know, we'd feel differently about it. Yeah, we've, we've found much the same thing where, you know, in fact, in many ways, uh, I think delivering support and delivering product innovation better than we did pre-COVID-19. So I'm, I'm wondering, has, has the other half of that thought uh, transpired as well, where you're wondering... Do we, do we ever return to the office as normal? And, and is there a kind of enduring change to the way that Fastcase works and maybe thinks about work from home starting to, to happen? Well, the only thing I'll say is that we, we all really like each other's company. And yeah. so I, I think that our team really misses being in the office together. Right. Um, there, is a, there is a lot of kind of spontaneous brainstorming 
that happens in the office. And things can happen a lot faster when you're doing things like product design, for example, when you're all in the office together. So there are things that happen faster and better and more efficiently in the office together. So I, I think, you know, I, I'm, this is just thumbnail from the uh, end of May 2020. My guess is that we will come back to the office. Um, but I think it's probably going to be uh, targeted more around uh, a vaccine that we know is effective, right? Yeah. And I don't think it's going to be the kind of situation where we're taking everyone's temperature when they come in in the morning and taking that as some sort of a proxy of, you know, whether they are safe to come to work. I mean, I think we all know now COVID-19 has a lot of people who are asymptomatic but contagious. And so I can't imagine like little plastic barriers or, you know, uh, taking temperature being enough. We may do those things, right? But I think it's going to end up being the, you know, the presence of a vaccine um, as the kind of frame that allows us to answer that question. But, you know, that's, it's an evolving point of view because I don't think we, we yet have good guidance from CDC or world health experts to, to give us uh, good knowledge of when to come back. I will definitely uh, check in on that. I think it's interesting to note, you know, where uh, one of the things I love about this this podcast is it's a bit of a time capsule where we'll be able to look back and see how did we feel in late May 2020 and when did we think we'd be returning to normal? And uh, I will certainly check in with you on 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 that in the future as a yeah, sidebar. I'm so you're, oh, I'm yeah. sorry. Go ahead. I was gonna I was gonna ask the same question of you, but uh, your sidebar first. Well, my sidebar first, and then I'll I'll answer the question. I I, I found myself wondering on the weekend how does one buy stock in plexiglass companies? Cause that is one <laughs> industry that is certainly booming. Um, and you know, like you Ed, I, I've got a bit of an evolving perspective on, on how things will look on the other side of this. We've seen a lot of Silicon Valley companies, I think almost in a, in a PR war around who can embrace work from home more fulsomely. So we yeah. saw, uh, Facebook and Google for say they're going to continue working from home for the rest of 2020. Uh, we saw Twitter last week or the week before actually say uh, we're we're never going to return to work. We're never going to require work from home employees to come into the office if they don't want to forever. Uh, so uh, and then you know just last week we saw uh, Shopify, which is Canada's largest technology company. Uh, say that they're going distributed by default was the phrase they use. So the idea that your in-person meetings, your product design sprints, um, everyone will be a tile on a screen and they may happen to share a physical space when we're doing that, when they're doing that, but they'll, they'll be a, a tile on the screen. And my perspective on this is I think number one, a lot of organizations are overestimating their ability to work fully distributed and fully remote because they are, drafting off of the momentum they built up pre-COVID-19 and even two and a half months into work from home for Clio, we're still benefiting from all the trust and the relationships and the collaboration and even the product roadmap, for example, that we had built out pre-COVID-19. We're benefiting from the leaders that we groomed and developed over the course of the last uh, over the pre-COVID-19 era and benefiting from the, their leadership over the course of the last two and a half months. So for, for me, what's an unanswered question is, where does that momentum start to taper off? And when, when do we start to feel the pain of work from home and distributed work? In a lot of ways, um, as I said earlier, we're working better, employees are more satisfied and more happy. 
we're shipping more product. We're seeing uh, actually record revenue performance. We're seeing uh, high all-time high net promoter score from our customers. We're seeing record level CSAT, customer satisfaction on our support front lines. So a lot of good stories. Um, and I think it'd be easy to extrapolate from the last two and a half months and say, let's do this forever. But I do think that's a dangerous data point to extrapolate from because essentially it's just one data point. It's, it's the last two and a half months that in the grand scheme of things is a relative blink of the eye. So, so for me, I'm wondering um, how do we best achieve you know, a hybrid of the two models and embrace the best parts of work from home? I do think Clea will end up being more distributed and more work from home. But like you, I really prize and value the uh, in-person interactions that you just can't replace with a Zoom meeting. And it's a product designer and a manager, a product manager and a um, you know, group of uh, engineers getting in front of a whiteboard and designing something new. Uh, and I've just never seen that happen as effectively as in person. So I, I saw a tweet a couple of weeks ago that I think captured it pretty well, which was, on-sites will be the new off-sites. You know, th this idea that uh, you'll go to the office probably with a very deliberate uh, task in mind. We're gonna go into uh, a space and achieve something, and then we're gonna go back home and, and work on executing on that. And I think for highly creative, highly innovative moments in any business, whether that's a law firm or uh, uh, a technology company, I think we'll, we'll see the need for those in-person gatherings, but a more permanent shift for when you're in heads down execution mode, why not do that from, from home if you've got a home environment that's set up? The, the other, and by the way, I'm conscious this is your interview and I'm, I've spoken more than no, you so I far, so I'm going to flip this quickly. <laughs> but uh, I, the other thing we've seen is there's really two ends of the spectrum in terms of how people are thinking about work from home. We've got people that have said, I love work from home and I never want to go back to the old way. And we've got people on the opposite end of the spectrum saying, I'm desperate to get back to the office. I've got kids climbing all over me. I've got a 400 square <laughs> foot apartment in downtown Vancouver that I'm trying to work out of with my, uh, my partner uh, and my kids. And it's just untenable and they're desperate to get back to an office environment. So I think accommodating those two ends of the spectrum and everyone in between that maybe wants a, uh, a bit of an in-between world is, is what we're going to try to achieve. And, and I, I think about that as a, kind of a hybrid model and, and how do we become world-class at that, that hybrid model. And I, I want to maybe pivot this conversation to your perspective, Ed, on, on the law firms that you see adapting to this, this new reality. We've seen technology companies like Fastcase, like Clio respond in a certain way What's your perspective on what's happening in the, the legal industry at a macro level? And are you seeing uh, the, the crisis have the kind of catalyzing effect you might, you might hope? Yeah, well, so at the, at the very high level, I'll say, um, you know, we have definitely seen and can validate the information in the Clio Legal Trends Report, which is that matters are really trailing off for mm -hmm. the month of April. Um, and so we saw, we've seen uh, kind of legal activity in terms of the outputs, right? So the number of complaints that we'll see in docket alarm, the number of filings and pleadings before courts, the number of decisions uh, in the fast case legal research service, the number of bankruptcy filings in next chapter, um, tracking these things in the macro, 
there was a little bump in March, I think, where people said, oh, crap, we're probably going to be at home for a long time. I need to finish these couple of things before I leave my yeah. physical office. Um, and then the long trail off, right, where, where things declined to a very large level uh, in April. And, uh, you know, I, I've seen some of the data from the legal trends report as well. So I know you're seeing the same thing at Clio. Um, we know it's going to pick back up, but we don't know. Yeah. When. And we maybe just to, to underscore those data points from the Clio side, Please. we saw over the course of February to April, uh, close to a 40% drop in new matter creation. So obviously that's one of the biggest leading indicators we can look for in terms of what is downstream revenue impact of COVID-19 going to be. Um, and we'll, we'll be publishing this, this state of the industry type report uh, monthly. So we, we published our first report on May 4th and on uh, mid-June, we will publish our, our updated June data. And uh, I think it'd be very interesting to see if we're starting to see the, the early glimmings of, glimmers of a, a recovery of, of some sort. I'm, I'm curious, you've got a real interesting constellation of data um, from the, the fast case perspective and, and fast case is of course involved in uh, more than, than just legal research. May, maybe we can talk first for a second, Ed, about, you know, what is fast case if there's any listeners and it's hard to imagine anyone that hasn't heard of fast case, but if they haven't heard of fast case, what is fast case? Um, but also what, what are the constellation of businesses that fast case owns? Uh, and you've really become, you know, a, a bit of a, uh, an empire over the last few years <laughs> with with a lot of different uh, businesses related to that that core research product, and then what what data points do those products give you in terms of the, these macro level trends in the industry? You touched touched on a couple, but I'd love to explore that a bit more in depth. Yeah, well, I think of FastCase as kind of a legal information company. So uh, we started as a legal research service, uh, capturing all of the judicial opinions, statutes, regulations, court rules constitutions that make sort of primary law. Um, traditionally in the U.S. only, although we would love to look to expand into other countries as well. Uh, we have expanded that into like kind of secondary materials, uh, treatises, books, and legal news uh, with uh, our acquisition of Law Street Media. Uh, and then uh, docket information and docket analytics, all of the things that are filed in courts that lead up to those opinions the complaints and the answers, the briefs, pleadings, and motions um, in state and federal courts, and then the analytics around them. Uh, what's the seasonality of litigation against Walmart? What law firm is more effective for a certain kind of cause of action in front of which judge? Uh, what arguments are likely to be well-received or to win in certain courts? Uh, what's the exposure of a certain kind of a lawsuit in a certain place? Uh, and then finally, um, uh, forms and workflow in next chapter. Um, uh, next chapter has traditionally been kind of like TurboTax or bankruptcy petitions. A lawyer and a paralegal would sit down with a client and go through an interview and the next chapter software, uh, which is all cloud-based, will allow the lawyer and the law firm and the paralegal from anywhere in the world to prepare a petition that's custom made for each of the 92 different bankruptcy courts in the country, each of which healthily has its own archaic sets of forms for uh, bankruptcy. Right. Um, so next chapter has traditionally been bankruptcy. We're now moving into 
uh, other areas like immigration or uh, trust in the states that will be very form heavy um, and create workflow tools that allow lawyers to practice these areas uh, effortlessly and errorlessly. So even if you're not like a bankruptcy lawyer, but you have a family law client who needs to file a bankruptcy, um, you know, next chapter can help law firms add that to their practice. But I think if you, if you look at this kind of holistically, uh, it is really a company that helps um, collect legal information uh, and legal data for effective practice and decision-making uh, and work product. So the, if, you, if you looked at like maybe the stock market in the 1970s, you might get a good like stock tip, you know, that would make you invest in a company or something. Right. And uh, software ate that. Software destroyed the hunch-based anecdotal uh, investment philosophy. And so what Fastcase is doing right now is the same thing in law. All of the decisions we've made in the past based on hunches or feeling like you know a judge because you gave to her campaign or you play golf with her or something, um, you know, now people will make those decisions with legal information and legal data. Uh, and whereas it used to be kind of a single point solution for legal research, now uh, there's a lot of kind of data sources that are combining with each other and providing a 360 degree view of that uh, kind of decision-making climate for the practice of law. Uh, and Ed, I'll, I want to point out that you're the editor of a book called Data-Driven Law, Law Data Analytics and the New Legal Services. So uh, a must read for anyone that's interested in deep diving on this topic. But as, as you pointed out, there's an opportunity for Moneyball style analytics in in legal and to do away with hunches to do away with gut instinct and talk about how how you can actually leverage data to make decisions and and take away all the subjectivity and and errors that often come along with trusting our judgment or trusting our gut can, can you talk about a few places that data can be leveraged in the practice of law that maybe are not front of mind or maybe not obvious to most lawyers? Yeah, so um, maybe just two. Um, so in addition to working with uh, lawyers who subscribe to Fastcase, Fastcase is a business and we use law firms. Uh, and often when we start some sort of a legal matter where Fastcase is the client, we will say to our law firm, how much is this likely to cost? And law firms will say something like, <laughs> it's going to cost you $650 times however many hours it takes us to finish the work. Um, and, and, you know, for me as a client, I will say, look, um, I've done zero of these. This is going to be the first time I've done a complaint in this court or this kind of tax filing, right? Um, you've done hundreds or thousands of them. You are in the best position to know what this is going to cost. You've got all of the data. There's an information asymmetry. So share it back with me. I don't need perfect data. I don't need you to say this is even like a fixed fee, although I would love a fixed fee. Tell me what it's cost in the past. Give me the bell curve. You know, tell me what characterizes the, the matters that cost the most. Because yeah. in a business, I need to make like those cost benefit decisions, right? Do I want to pursue this litigation or not? Uh, is it worthwhile to, um, you know, file in this particular way in tax? Is it going to save us enough money? considering the legal fees or is the juice not worth the squeeze 
you know, we want to acquire a small company. Um, does it even make sense to use a law firm in that case, or should we just go it alone? And so in the past, like I'd say, you know, clients make these decisions based on guesswork. Yeah. There's, there's, there's no data that they can use to say, um, this makes sense. This doesn't make sense. Should we oppose this motion and spend the money um, recognizing that it is highly unlikely to succeed, right? Should we settle this case today instead of litigating it? Because we know that our chances of winning are 9%, right? Uh, so I, I would just say from a client's perspective, um, law feels very foreign and very risky in part because of that information asymmetry. And Jack, you and I have talked about this a little bit before. Um, the, the kind of now famous American Bar Foundation survey that says that 20% of people who need legal help in the U.S. and that a number that's kind of mirrored in Canada and worldwide um, are doing that through the legal services market, 80% of people who have problems are not. Right. And many lawyers and law firms approach this as if it is a problem exogenous to them. Um, legal services are expensive and that's a fact of life that is a fixed part of the world and people don't have enough money, especially in the people law sector, but also in the corporate law sector to pay for these very expensive products. And that's too bad. Poverty, they might say, like who right. access to justice uh, crisis. And, and somebody else needs to solve that problem. Yes. If, if we could just solve poverty, then people could afford my expensive legal services when they appear in court. Uh, right. And the fact that no one can possibly understand how much this legal service is going to cost um, is just an unfortunate byproduct of what legal services are. And so, you know, as, as you have said in uh, the Client Center Law Firm um, and in many uh, of your speeches, that's not how markets work. That is, that is like the, the uh, quote in the frame on behind the desk of the CEO of Netflix and Uber, right? That is the, the rationale for the disruptor. If you yeah. want to find a market to disrupt, find a market that says something like that. The customer's problems are their own problems and not ours. You know, the, the features of this market are fixed forever and there's nothing we can do it about it. But, you know, we'll just expect customers to rewind the cassette and drive back to our bricks and mortar store uh, to return that one cassette and then look to see if we have that other cassette that they want in stock. Right. So, so time and again, uh, you know, law firms can't, really or haven't really met uh, clients where they live, where they want to live. Um, and, you know, this is kind of a good news, bad news thing, right? If you're an innovative law firm, it's a great news thing because everything that you do to delight customers, to create uh, an effortless experience for them, uh, to quote you, Jack, um, means more business for you. Means that, that you can reach- That 80% of the market is up for grabs that latent market is all upside, right? And um, I've heard you say this number of times before, but uh, I will maybe parrot it back to you. Uh, the last survey I saw of this legal services market, Thomson Reuters Legal Executive Institute, the size of the legal services market in the US, about $437 billion. That's just 20%. Right. Right. So the, the latent market is probably easily as big. The size of the legal services market in the U.S. alone 
is probably closer to $1 trillion. Um, and as you say in your book, if you look at the, the size of the market for Netflix today, it is far in excess of the entire market for Blockbuster and all of the video rental services. I can't even think what they were anymore. Um, right. You know, it, Blockbuster it's and its ilk never had yeah. businesses that were the scale of Netflix, uh, even at their peak. Right. Uh, and so it's not like uh, Netflix just displaced the Blockbuster market. Netflix created a market that engulfed the Blockbuster market. And so the good news is for innovative legal services providers, for entrepreneurial lawyers, I would say probably, you know, the, the cohort that's using Clio and Fastcase right now, uh, there is so much upside. There is such a great opportunity, you know, maybe not to be like a global Netflix, to, but to be the Netflix of family law lawyers in your community, to be the Netflix of corporate formation or corporate bankruptcy in your market. Uh, you might be able to reach people that traditional law firms were never able to. So that's the good news part of it. Um, you know, the bad news part of it is nobody's doing it. Or very, very few law firms are changing their business models, even now, right? Uh, yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to talk about that. So that COVID nineteen, you know, we've talked about in so many industries. It's been this this kind of accelerant of change that was already underway. And if you look at, let's look at retail as an example. There was a shift away from bricks and mortar retail, a shift toward uh, e-commerce, a, a shift toward online purchasing. And there was some data published just a couple of weeks ago that talked about the adoption rate of online shopping, e-commerce. Uh, and it, it just looked like uh, a vertical line around mid-March uh, where adoption uh, just tripled and, and grew more in the course of two months than it did in the previous 10 years. So we're seeing some spaces like, like retail get transformed and, and see this trend that I think most of us saw uh, was well underway. We saw physical malls starting to fade into obscurity. Um, and, and we saw companies like Shopify you know, emerge as, as very strong leaders. Amazon is, is busier than they've ever been. Uh, do we see a similar trend in, in legal? Are you say, seeing the same kind of accelerating impact on legal in the way that you, you might expect? Uh, in short, no. Um, and and I, I would love to, right? So I am definitely not um, uh, a doomsayer. I'm not like a pontificator or a futurist or anything. Um, I am rooting for law firms. I'm rooting for the law firm you know, business model and for helping clients. And I'm rooting for the legal services market. And I've, I've said for a couple of years, there is a window here for us to kind of reinvent legal services and to tap that lead market and to, you know, really have law firms uh, do better work and more interesting work, less drudgery, and to uh, really scale the impact of their help. And I have to say, like, as much as I'm a cheerleader for law firms, I really can't point to a lot of law firms that are during this crisis fundamentally changing their business. Um, you know, I, I think you've said uh, this is the kind of time where you see 10 years of change in five weeks, right? Yeah. I may have the number of weeks wrong. But in many industries, you see like this radical acceleration of the pace of change. Uh, as a necessity, you have to, right? 
but I don't see it in law firms. I don't see it at all, or or at least you know in very very small instances where law firms are changing their businesses to meet this new reality. Uh, maybe the brightest part I've seen for this um, was uh, about a week and a half ago. Um, the the next chapter team threw a uh, kind of virtual bankruptcy week summit. Uh, Jack, that was, you know this that was fantastic. You it was, uh, I was part of it and it was a, a great event and uh, uh, the first great virtual event I, uh, I've been part of, which was really exciting. Yeah, I think the, the Next Chapter team did a terrific job of uh, throwing that. Um, and the, the, the thing that really stuck out for me was that it was thousands of law firms, uh, like more than 3,200 lawyers and law firms who signed up for this conference to do something different. You know, what they wanted to do was to add bankruptcy as a practice area for their small firm. Traditionally, people you know, who have not practiced bankruptcy, but who recognize they're going to have restaurant clients or retail clients or family clients who need to reorganize their debts. Um, and they're saying, in order to serve those clients, in order to be successful in my law firm as a business, I'm going to have to change. I'm going to have to do something different uh, that is very client-centered, very client-focused to help my clients navigate this new time. And man, you know, um, just everything in my experience with customer service, with practicing law, um, has taught me that when you help people uh, in their biggest times of need, you have a friend and a customer for life. You know, when people's backs are really against the wall and you are able to help them, they're going to bring everything to you. So I'm very encouraged to see law firms who are trying to at least add practice areas, who are trying to innovate in their law firms. Uh, obviously, adding bankruptcy is not the only way that you could or should do that. Um, but, you know, if, if, if we could take this time, uh, the spring and summer of 2020, and finally move a lot of law firm practices that are stuck uh, in stupid, insecure, expensive on-premises systems and move those practices to the cloud, um, you know, take book products that are sitting in binders behind the desk and move those online, take a, um, you know, workforce that is very concentrated on hourly one-on-one -on -one engagements and build them out into scalable distributed enterprises. And again, you don't have to be a thousand people. You could be, you know, uh, a lawyer, a paralegal, and a legal secretary. Uh, but to work in a distributed way and to create products that clients can use at scale. And if we could, if we could sort of uh, see in the legal industry that kind of evolution, a decade's worth of evolution, you know, in this spring and summer, it's an amazing opportunity for law firms. Uh, Barring that, I don't know what our profession expects clients to do. You know, we're, the clients aren't going to do gymnastics to come to us. They're going to go find someone else to provide the service or they're going to cook it themselves. And one of the comments you made in the, our, our preamble before starting recording this, this show, Ed, was, was a comment to the effect of if it's not COVID-19 that catalyzes this change that legal needs to undertake, what will it take? It's, it's hard to imagine a world event that is fundamentally transforming how so many industries are, are operating and accelerated change that's underway. If, 
if we're not able to lean into this opportunity, if, if we want to look at the silver lining that is COVID-19, it's an opportunity to experiment. We have permission to experiment from our clients and from the from the world. This is this is no no better opportunity will surface in our lifetimes to rethink how we deliver legal services. Beautifully said. I think the question is, is this the beginning of this process or the end of this process? It really could be the beginning of a period of great experimentation of law firms creating new products to serve clients better in a very client-centered way, or it could be the end. If, if we're not able to experiment now, when everyone is working from home, when clients aren't leaving their homes, where we're going to need trying to try new things in order to reach those clients, then when? If, it's, if COVID-19 isn't the catalyst to create that change, that change might never happen for the legal services market. So Ed, I'm curious what you, you've got a really broad perspective on what's going on in legal and legal technology. So in addition to running Fastcase, which I would, I would venture to say is probably one of the most widely used pieces of legal technology on the, on the planet with most American <laughs> lawyers having, having access to it from their, uh, from their bar associations. Uh, you, you also teach at Georgetown, uh, teaching a class about the law of robots. Uh, you're an expert in everything from uh, cloud-based software to artificial intelligence uh, and machine learning. You're, you're really uh, a bit of a renaissance man, I think, uh, in, in legal, and you touch on a lot of different uh, areas of technology and have a very broad vantage point in terms of what's going on in the industry. When, when you take all of these areas of uh, expertise where you see the, the trends that are underway on the technology side and, and you couple that with uh, what you know about the legal market and the perspective you have, what do you believe the, if, if we execute against the opportunity that's out there, if we kind of look at the, the positive outcome side of things, how do lawyers best embrace the, the technologies that are beginning to emerge or already well-established that can help them in delivering legal services? And how do they, they shift their thinking into what, what I sometimes describe as a bit of a growth mindset as opposed to a fixed mindset and, and a, a very precedent-driven mindset, which is unsurprisingly the dominant one for, for many lawyers? How, how do, give me, on one hand, I guess, uh, you know, some predictions. I'd love to hear some, some big Ed Walters-style thoughts about what the, the future holds. <laughs> For, for legal uh, and and what you think the opportunities for lawyers are in terms of shifting their thinking in a way that maybe better prepares them for the realities ahead. Yeah, well, um, no pressure, right? Um, no pressure. Especially <laughs> I'm doing this the week after you have Richard Susskind on. So um, <laughs> as I said, I, I'm really not like a futurist of any kind, but I am very curious um, and one thing that really strikes me right now is uh, not the not the future for artificial intelligence, but the future for emotional intelligence. Um, you know, AI has proven uh, AI and software generally has proven very good at replicating the dullest, dirtiest, most dangerous tasks. Uh, if you look at just electronic discovery in the legal services market, uh, you know that was something that nobody ever wanted to do in my law firm. Uh, and today, lawyers, for the most part, don't do discovery in the way they did 20 years ago. And that wasn't a hard transition. 
people say that lawyers are Luddites or technophobes or whatever, and I frankly don't buy that. Uh, if you look at the way law firms moved to use Zoom in the last six weeks, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Zoom video conferencing software um, was not very widely used in law firms. And then suddenly, like everyone on the planet was using it like two weeks later, right? And Zoom is not the easiest thing in the world. Like it will disconnect your headphones or you can mute yourself accidentally or whatever. Uh, But even Supreme Court justices have sort of figured out how to use video conferencing tech and uh, lawyers and law firms, you know, really around the world in a very short amount of time, figured out how to use this technology and it wasn't a big deal. And so... uh, I think that uh, the the kind of software part of this will blend to the background. Uh, it won't be a thing to have Clio in the cloud or next chapter in the cloud or to use a book or a form that you used to use in a binder in Fastcase or in Docket Alarm or something else. The software will kind of disappear into the background. And I'm very optimistic about the ability of lawyers to use software, um, at least well-designed software, right? Uh, software that kind of gets out of its way will get out of the way. The real question for me is uh, how do the humans respond? How do human law firms and business development leaders change the business to find new clients? Now that they can't go um, have lunch at the city club with them or go play golf with them or, you know, meet at the rotary club, all these kinds of things we've done in the past to build business how do we uh, find new ways to relate to clients and maybe understand them better, to get more into their space, to understand their circumstances better than we have in the past? And I think it's going to be that emotional intelligence that comes from this period, from understanding our clients as people, from them knowing us and our firms as people, those, those human relationships that are going to be the enduring thing from this time. The things that we're going to remember the most are not going to be whether we're using, uh, you know, Google Hangouts or Zoom. Uh, It's going to be that time where the client called in tears and said, I'm at the end of my rope. I don't know what to do, you know, and uh, a lawyer, a trusted advisor sits next to them and says, your problems are my problems. You know, you're going through the worst day of your life and you don't have to face this alone. You know. I've seen worse. Here's what's going to happen next. Here's how we're going to face this shoulder to shoulder, maybe virtually shoulder to shoulder, but together. Right. And I think when people look back on this time, it is really going to be these extraordinary human connections uh, that are made possible by this crisis. That's really going to be the most memorable part, both for lawyers and for clients. I, th- I think it's a really profound observation, Ed, and I, I love your your frame around this. I, I do believe uh, technology, when it's doing its job, fades into the background. And this this focus on emotional intelligence, I think, is so important for for one, for all the the lawyers out there worried that the the robots are coming to take our jobs. It's the one <laughs> place that uh, we, at least for the time being, have a an, uh, a unique advantage over over the machines. And I, I think it's actually a, a highly underdeveloped skill in most lawyers as well. And it's one of the concepts I talk about in my, in my book, uh, this, this idea of empathy, which is not a unique or a new idea, but this, the, the enormous amount of power it gives 
the relationship that you have with a client, if you're able to build true empathy for them, to leverage, as, as you pointed out earlier, this information asymmetry to help your client to say, to put their mind at ease, say, I've navigated, let's use the bankruptcy ex example, I've navigated 200 of these. I know what lies ahead. I can give you the comfort that there's an other side to this process that you're going to come out stronger and you're going to come out better positioned for a bright future. And I know how to get you there. That that emotional connection is is so powerful. And I've I've heard a number of clients even over the last few months uh, as, as we've you know truly entered this pandemic comment on the fact that um, they're seeing a human side to their lawyers in this in this pandemic uh, even even their big firm lawyers that are maybe working from home that they really appreciate like there's a hunger we, we often talk about this this uh, asymmetry between what lawyers expectations of what clients want are and what those clients actually want are and it's one of the things we've explored a lot uh, in the legal trends report uh, at Clio, and it's something I know you've thought about a lot as well, um, Ed, you, you really, I think, see a hunger and a need for this human connection, especially in a time like this. But I think that actually spans uh, beyond this crisis and, and people seeing the human side of lawyers, people seeing them operate at home, people seeing their kids wander into the, the Zoom uh, frame. Exactly right. They, they actually really prize that and value it. And I think that's been an interesting trend for me to, to, to see. And I think you really hit the nail on the head with your, your comment about emotional intelligence. Yeah, just to, to, to emphasize what you're saying here, most lawyers, most law firm lawyers, like uh, want to keep the dog out of the frame because they right. feel like it makes them look unprofessional, right? But for clients, when the dog comes in, it is the highlight of the call, right? You think about these business meetings or whatever, like uh, when the kid comes stomping through with the electric guitar in the background, that is like the best part of the call. You know, you really understand somebody better uh, when their cat like comes walking across the screen <laughs> in right. the middle of the call. And for a client and for many people, that is like the highlight, that is the most memorable thing. Um, it's why the, the, the expert from CNN, I can't remember where it was, it was South Korea where the, the kid comes like, that, that's right. through the room that in the made, background. That went viral, what, last year? It, yes. It was two years ago? It's like, the, it's like the best part of that interview, right? And so, you know, I'm not saying uh, march your cat in front of the camera for the call, but what I am saying is that these human parts of who we are um, aren't distractions from these relationships. They are the relationships. This is a way that we know each other uniquely during COVID-19 that might carry forward after this. Uh, to, to pass on one anecdote, uh, I, I heard a client speak about the experience he's had with a, a very large national law firm, and he, he's used to working with their San Francisco office, and, and he commented he's a venture capitalist, uh, commented he's getting more responsiveness and better service from his lawyers in the COVID-19 pandemic, loves connecting with them personally and getting on a Zoom call uh, with them in their, in their homes um, and wants them to continue that way on the other side of the pandemic with the, with the caveat that he also wants them to walk away from their million dollar a year downtown <laughs> San Francisco lease uh, because he doesn't need uh, all the the pomp and circumstance of that that office to feel good about the legal services he's he's receiving, and I think that's 
that's uh, reflective of a broader trend that I think most lawyers would be well served to to recognize is ultimately this is uh, an individual and very human relationship that you're building with a client. Yeah. Well, maybe to, to close on that, um, you know, I, I uh, definitely think that we are taking a different look at the way we work, um, macro and micro. So the profession is certainly our team at Fast Cases. But I, I'll just say I miss being in the office with uh, our team. You know, it's a, it's a great, smart, fun group of people. Uh, and I miss them. I miss the opportunity to visit with friends at conferences. And, you know, I, I do think that we're going to rethink uh, some of those things going forward. Um, it's going to be a difficult transition back, but I really do hope we get back. I hope that we will be able to, um, you know, meet in person, uh, go running together and, uh, you know, find good ways to connect in person again soon. I, I agree, Ed. And uh, uh, a long time, time tradition you and I've shared is going for a, a morning run uh, on the opening day of, uh, the Clio Cloud Conference before I, I get on stage and, and do my <laughs> right. uh, opening keynote. And I, I certainly hope we'll be able to enjoy that uh, in the not too distant future. I am very much looking forward to it. It's not really the same over Zoom. Uh, not at all. Um, well, Ed, this has been a wonderful conversation. We just scratched the surface of so many things we could talk about, um, but I, I, I love it every chance uh, I have to have a conversation with you. And We'll definitely need to, to pick this up in a, a part two. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters today, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider, for supporting this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Clio, please visit clio.com.